This is Steve McLeod, and you are listening to Bootstrapped, the podcast for people running bootstrapped software companies. In episode 227, I chat with Nick Swan from seotesting.com. We discuss how Nick took on a co-founder for his already established business, why Nick decided to no longer be a one-person show and instead have a team, and most importantly, how Nick sold a small part of his company in order to join Tiny Seed, a startup accelerator designed for founders who would traditionally bootstrap. Welcome back to the show, Nick. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm really good. Hey, before we go any further, tell us what SEO testing is. So it's a tool to help you with your search engine optimization. Um, it links up with Google Search Console, which is Google's tool that provides you with information about what queries your site is ranking for, what people are searching for, and how they're finding you within Google. Um, but it's a bit clunky to use, only gives you access to certain data. But through the Search Console API, we can get access to loads more data to present to you. So it's a tool that grabs all your queries, all the data for your pages and so on, and lets you see that data. Um, but through having access to your data, then we can do some interesting stuff around testing. So when you make a change to a page, we'll tell you how it, that page performed before you made your change compared to after the change. That's where the testing aspect comes into it. So you can see if the optimizations you're making are making those pages perform better in Google or worse. Excellent. And it's seotesting.com, if I remember correctly. .com, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it originally started right. as a product, product called Sanity Check. Um, and so that was about four years ago and it had testing aspect in it. And I did a load of customer interviews, um, which is a good thing to do as you talk about on your podcast many times, I'm sure. Um, and the, the bit of the functionality that people were getting the most value from was the testing side of things. And so I decided to kind of focus and position the tool to SEO testing. And thankfully some nice chap owned the domain name, seotesting.com. And he sold it to me for a reasonable amount. Didn't hold me hostage or anything. And so we repositioned and kind of relaunched the tool a couple of years ago um, as seotesting.com. And that positioning has made a, a world of difference to the tool just in kind of terms of how well it's doing, people's understanding of what it does. Um, so names and positioning do matter. Now, you were previously on this podcast in episode 177, which was about hmm, 14 months ago. And there we talked about how you and your family coped with a difficult life event. It was one of my favorite episodes, I have to say. I mean, they're all my favorites, but that one particularly, and it was definitely the hardest for me to make. But today we're going to focus not on your life, but on your business, getting a co-founder and joining the Tiny Seed Incubator. That's a lot that's happened in those, uh, in those months. It has, yeah, I guess it, like we started talking to Tiny Seed in around August time last year. But it didn't really kick into action until we I mean, go through that whole process of applying and, and how that all worked. Uh, but it didn't really kick into action until January this year. So it's been a very busy start to the year with contracts and solicitors and back and forth and all that kind of stuff. But, but yeah, excited to be able to talk about it now, really, because there's like a long period where you can't mention it because you don't want to kind of preempt stuff and things might fall apart and agreements might not be met or got to. So yeah, it's great to be able to talk about it now. Wondering if, we sh if I should uh, revoke your bootstrapper badge now that you've taken investment. I mean, this podcast is called Bootstrapped, and it sounds like you're no longer a pure bootstrapper. Well, maybe you keep it as an honorary member. 
You kind of feel like but we're virtually bootstrapped now. Is that the, the term or, or close to bootstrapped? Um, so we're not going the VC route by any means. Um, so yeah, we're still profitable. We'll still remain that way. We're not going to run into uh, the kind of negative cash flow or anything. Do you want to give us a size roughly of your company, either via revenue or team size or anything else you're willing to share? Sure. Yeah. So we're kind of open with our numbers on Twitter. So happy to share numbers and answer any questions around those. So we are just in terms of monthly recurring revenue, we're just a smidge under 16,000 US dollars a month at the moment. 16,000 US dollars. That's quite the achievement. Thanks. Yeah. I think last time we talked, it was only a few thousand, you know, that sounds like quite rapid growth. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And again, this is where the renaming and the position has really helped in terms of people knowing what the product is and how it can help them. Right. Um, so yeah, so that's where we are in terms of monthly recurring revenue. Whether we'll keep sharing that and being public about that, we'll, uh, time will tell because people seem to get to a certain level and then they, they, they stop. Um, but there's no, the one, one of the reasons I've done it is it is partly marketing. So every time we do an update on Twitter, we get people retweet it and share it and so on. I think it adds credibility to the product in terms of it's not just a, you know, here today, gone tomorrow type thing is a real business that's profitable and making money. And there's also, uh, no SEO, other SEO tool that's kind of open about their numbers. So. The Twitter SEO community is like a big help to SEO testing. They share a lot of information about it. So I kind of feel like I'm bringing pe those people into the journey and kind of helping them experience the, the joys and pain of trying to build a SaaS tool and, uh, and, uh, they're living the dream with me to a certain degree. Wonderful. And how many of you are working in the company? Yes, there's three of us now. Um, so up until we're going to go through this as well, up until September, it was just myself. Um, but then Phil joined and then about four months ago, Tiago, who lives in the Azores in the middle of the Atlantic, he joined to help out with content and writing. Um, so yeah, it's three of us now. Okay. So there's three of you. So 16,000, it's good revenue profitability. I guess we're close to break even or slightly profitable. Yeah. Slightly profitable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's all relevant for, for hearing a bit about, uh, what tiny seed pays and what they get out of your company. But before we do more about Tiny Seed, I want to know about this co-founder because you didn't have one and now you do. So why, why did you take on a co-founder? How did you find him? So like four years ago, when I started Silency Check, which was the precursor, uh, to SEO testing, I kind of came out of a business that we had uh, quite a few employees. And so I was like, right, I've had enough of employing people. I've had enough of managing people. It's just going to be me as an experiment. I'm going to see how big I can grow a business as just me. Um, but having said that, I always made use of contractors, uh, freelancers for design, for content, those kind of things. So just me with the, with the help of experts and I'm on, on a contract basis. Um, but from talking to others last summer, um, I kind of decided that I'd had enough of just working by myself. Um, it might have something to do with being imbued to be fair, cause we moved down here. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. You don't have anyone to meet with on a day-to-day -day basis to chat about work and SAS and the problems you're going through. So I thought having a team to be able to talk about stuff would be nice and work together. You kind of miss that camaraderie of problem solving together and coming up with better solutions than perhaps you would do by yourself. Um, so I thought about building a team said, yes, let's do that. But I also, at the same time, I only wanted to build a team with people that I knew and enjoyed spending time with. Um, so this could be people on, I've met on Twitter as, as happened with Tiago. So they don't have to be like, you know, physical friends and so on. But when it came to Phil, we had worked together before in a previous business, uh, around Microsoft SharePoint. I think we 
been uh, kind of uh, working for about six years together, six or seven years. So we knew each other quite well. Um, it kind of started the same way that I'd worked with other people before. So I had a specific standalone project that I wanted to get done, which was a Google Chrome extension um, to show your SEO testing data in. So I contacted Phil. Um, he was working on his own bit of software at the time. And I just said to him, you know, are you doing any contract work at the moment? What's your current situation? He was looking for a bit of work to fill the space and so on. And so we just started working together on this one individual standalone project. And we kind of like, you know, hit it off again, however you want to say, <laughs> like he knew how I worked. I know how he works. And after a couple of months of working together, it was kind of like, let's make this more of a full-time thing. And then because he was interested in his own bit of software and he was trying to start his own business and stuff, I was like, there is this opportunity of going through tiny seed. So if you were to come on board as a co-founder, you could come through tiny seed with SEO testing. You know, it's a great opportunity within SEO testing itself, but then also from a point of view of learning yourself. And so if you want to build software or start another SaaS, you know, you'll have that, that network of tiny seed founders. You'll know about a lot more experience about what to do and things. So that was kind of like a selling point to him coming on board as well as a co-founder, um, and being full-time. So does, did you sell him a, a chunk of your company or you pay him? less than what he get at market rate in return, he gets this equity in the company. Like how does, how, how does one take on a co-founder for a company that's already kind of started the actual mechanics, the legal side of it, I, I, I think I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Well, I guess each company is set up differently. Um, so it would depend on your own situation, how you set up the company, how shares have been assigned, you know, whether A and B shares have been created at time of formation of the company and stuff. But in this, this particular instance with Phil, um, I kind of said to him, you know, this is the salary we can pay. It's less than market rate. Understand that still a, a, a decent salary. I say I won't, he's not on the breadline or anything like that, but you know, there is the opportunity, uh, we'll agree that you can come on board as a co-founder and go through tiny seed and there'll be the opportunity to get share options and so on. It's a little bit complicated because, uh, from a financial point of view, it made sense to get all the tiny seed stuff agreed before setting up the share option scheme. Um, so there's a little bit of timing issues around that, but that's kind of like the mechanics of how it's worked, I guess. It's quite interesting that you've originally wanted to do it all by yourself because it mirrors my own situation quite a lot with feature upvote. I particularly picked that product domain because I knew it's something I could do as a one person, but after not too long, I actually realized I wanted somebody else. I wanted employees at least, or, or an ongoing relationship with contractors simply because there were bits of the work I did not enjoy and I wanted to hand them over. I realized I no longer wanted to do all the tasks. I just wanted to do the ones I found fun. Yeah. And this is interesting as well. This is perhaps from a different point of view for me. So Phil's come on board as technical co-founder. So the idea for Phil is that he's going to take on the development stuff. Now that's the bit I've enjoyed doing up to date, most of all. And so I'm kind of moving into more of a marketing business stroke role, or I was doing that anyway, I guess, but just split roles. Yeah. So now I'm, my time is fully doing marketing, product development or product, yeah, product management, that kind of stuff. So it's taken a little bit of me having to change my mindset and I still try and get into the code every now and again, just to, to scratch that itch and so on. But, um, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it works out that way. But I guess that's his strength, right? His strength is development coding. So it makes sense that that's the, the pit that he's doing, that Phil's doing. Yeah. yeah. And you maybe have wider 
experience. If I remember from talking to you in the past, you seem to have quite a good understanding of the marketing and sales side of things as well. Well, SEO, yeah, that's part of my background. So like traditionally I've done software engineering at university. That's where development comes from, but I've always tinkered around in SEO since 98 before even 1998, before even Google was around. So I've always kind of had that uh, product marketing background as well. This is where we should work well together in terms of Phil taking on the development side of things and me doing the product marketing, but it's just me leaving the code alone. That's difficult. And also uh, <laughs> Phil, Phil, Phil has his own styles as well in terms of, of writing code and stuff like that and how he approaches it. So I kind of almost have to, well, at the moment I'm looking through the code and doing a bit of a code review and stuff like that, but it'll be, it'll be nice when I just get away from that completely. And I just look at the end product and I don't look at the code behind because yeah, I don't have to worry about it, but we'll get there eventually. <laughs> I suspect that'll be a good position for both of you to get into because it's, it's not nice having somebody, uh, second guess or micromanage your, your coding. Uh, it's quite nice when you can just code as you want to code and have that responsibility and ownership. Yep. Totally. Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. And then you have the third person, Diago, who is a, an employee or a contractor. Uh, so we or somewhere in that. Yeah, we treat him as an employee, but legally he's a contractor. He came from a Twitter recommendation of all places, a recommendation from someone I don't even know apart from on Twitter. So it was just one of those tweets saying, I know someone who's a good marketeer, a good writer, who's looking for some work. Let me know and I can introduce you. And just one evening I was just scrolling through Twitter and saw that and thought, oh, we could do with some help for some content and so on. Got put in contact, did a couple of test articles and yeah, Tiago's joined now full time. He's been with us about three months, three or four months. What, what's interesting about this and was interesting with, um, with Phil as well, and you might have found this yourself when you're just working by yourself, you're kind of a bit more reactionary. So you're kind of wake up in the morning and go, oh, I feel like working on this. I feel like working on that feature. When you've got employees, you kind of have to be a bit more, uh, intentional and plan a bit more. So even when Tiago and Phil first joined, it'll be very task orientated in terms of they'd get, I'd, I'd say, you know, we need to build this, they'd go off and do that come back in two days time and say, oh, what, what do you want me to do now, Nick? And that would add stress onto me because I'd have to think, feel like I'm keeping them busy, think of the next task they need to do. Tiago's the same. So he'd get a piece of content, finish writing it, come back to me a day later and say, oh, I need another bit of content to write now, Nick. So that was adding stress initially. Um, but we've got to a better place now where I, <laughs> and it's all down to me in terms of putting more thought into the next six weeks and planning stuff out for them for the next six weeks to do, not, not how they're going to do it. So they have the, the freedom to how they approach a task, but say, you know, this is what we want to do. This is roughly how we want to accomplish it. That's what you're working on for the next week. And these are your tasks after that as well. So just a bit of getting used to having team members again. Yeah. It's a different style of working. It's probably a better style of working, but, but you lose that freedom of just deciding on a day by day basis of what you're going to do, what you're going to focus on. Yeah. yeah. Especially a content person, I can imagine you just. You need to have more of a plan than write this piece of content and then think about the next one, but some sort of like content calendar or strategy that encompasses the next six months or a year, maybe even. I've, I heard this saying once that, um, when, when you take on a team member, a lot of people just, and myself as well, are guilty of this, of just passing that work off to someone and just assuming they know instinctively what you're expecting them to do and how to do it as though they've got your brain and they do it exactly the same way as you. And I think, I, I think the same was something like this is, you know, don't abdicate the work or whatever. You've got to delegate it. 
And part of that delegation process is coming up with a proper content brief and then working with them once they pass the content back to, you know, help them with how you would approach it and all that kind of stuff. So up until now, I've been very, what I have done is just pass stuff off and expect people to do it exactly the same way I would do it. But it's much more of an involved mm -hmm. process of me, you know, needing to work with them and get them up to speed and stuff like that. And I haven't had to do that for a long time. So it's taken me a little while to get used back to used to be doing that. Um, hopefully I've crossed the bridge. Hopefully let's talk more about tiny seed. Uh, that's ostensibly what I'm supposed to be talking to you about today. So, uh, you recently joined tiny seed. Tiny seed is this remote incubator that takes in a, a cohort of companies like yours, maybe I think 15 at a time, if I remember correctly. And you're part of their very first European based cohort. This is what I read on tiny seeds website. Tiny Seed invests 120,000 to 220,000 US dollars per company for 10 to 12% equity. Is that close to how, up to your experience? Yes. Right. Yeah. Around those numbers. Yeah. I, I won't push you on specifics because I'm pretty sure that's uh, as much as you're allowed to say there, but it gives people an idea. So we know that your company's doing about $16,000 in monthly revenue and you've now just taken on somewhere that's equivalent to a year or so's revenue and, uh, and in return, they take a little bit of your company and you just signed everything on that just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So I can tell you the whole story. Do you want to hear how it started from the very beginning? <laughs> I would love to hear it from day one. Well, not so, from the day you were born, from, but from the day you first, first signed up for tiny seed. So I've been a, a listener to startups for the rest of us since I think the podcast very first came out since episode one. And so been following along with Rob's progress and um, the launch of Tiny Seed, and they always said that at the very start that Tiny Seed was only going to be for US companies. But Rob on the podcast kind of said Rob Wallingness was uh, always said it's a good exercise to go through and do their application form anyway because it asks you some questions that makes you think about the business and so on. So I think say they've had five or six batches that they funded of US companies. Every time I've gone through and I've done the, the questionnaire and, and done the application uh, stuff, completely not expecting to get through. So they have funded some foreign companies, but I think some of those companies may have converted over to US entities um, for that funding to take place and so on. Um, so come last summer, I did the application as I do every, every year, or I think it's every twice a year now it runs. And this was for, still for the American fund where they the, expect the you to be fund. an American company. Yeah. Correct. And they got back in touch this time. It wasn't just a, uh, oh, sorry, if you've not heard from us, we're not, uh, uh, you've not made the cut or whatever. Uh, I got an email from Tracy, the program manager said, oh, we'd like to have a chat with you if that's okay, if you're still interested. I was like, oh, I hadn't actually thought about, uh, <laughs> what's going on and whether I want to actually uh, like properly apply or anything. So I was like, okay, we'll have a chat. Probably won't go anywhere. Sounds all good. So I had a chat with Tracy and then at straight at the end of the call, she was like, well, it sounds like you're a perfect fit for us. I'd like to arrange a call with Rob and Einar if you're interested. Uh, and I was like, yeah, sure. No worries. It'd be good to have a chat with Rob and Einar anyway, even if nothing comes from this. Um, so we set up a call, chatted to them both. They asked some questions, went back and forth and so on. And the, uh, I can't remember if it was at the end of the call or via a follow-up email, but they basically said, look, we'd like, we're interested. We'd like to, to fund the business or make the investment. There's two options. You can either go now with the U S batch. And you would have to convert to a US entity. Now this was kind of September, October time, I think, or they were like, you can wait, we'll keep your details on system and so on. And the offer is kind of still there, 
you can wait until early 2022 when we're going to start our first EU batch and you can come in through that. And so I did a little bit of research, you know, for personal tax reasons in the UK and the complexities of changing over to a US entity. I kind of thought, well, it will probably take until the start of 2022 to get all of that sorted out anyway. And so I just kind of said, you know, I'll, I'm happy to wait for the EU batch. You'll be talking with other people in my time zone anyway, so it'll probably make a bit more sense. So I kind of parked it, left it. They opened the EU batch for applications. I didn't reapply. I kind of just left it and I kind of thought, well, if they're really interested in investing, they'll, they'll get back in contact with me. It was kind of like a little, uh, litmus test or a temperature check or whatever. And so they did come back and they said, oh, you haven't reapplied, but are you still interested in going for it? And I was like, oh, they've actually got back in touch. Now I need to think about it a bit more. <laughs> still not really having thought about whether to go for it. Um, and I said, yes, there wasn't any follow-up interview. It was all based on the previous interview that I'd done. And it wasn't actually until I got a letter of intent through with kind of the numbers and the equity and those kind of things that I kind of thought to myself, oh, I better take this seriously now. I better actually think about whether this is something I want to do. So that was really when I, I sat down, thought about it. Um, I spoke to a, a couple of friends about it. One of them made a great suggestion and said, what you should do is get in contact with some of the tiny seed founders and go for the ones that you don't hear about. So not, you know, the Castos founders or, or the other ones, go for the, the ones that you don't hear quite so much about to see what their experience is. So got the list, got in contact with a few, only heard good things about the whole process. Um, one of the questions I had was, does it add extra stress to your life? And they were like, no, no extra stress whatsoever. And I was like, well, that's a big thumbs up. Um, and so at that point, and after discussions with Phil and you know, what it would kind of mean to Phil and the opportunity for him as well, it was like, yeah, let's go for it. And so kind of accepted on their letter of intent that kicked off the whole process then of, uh, contracts and solicitors and so on. But I think we finally signed towards the end of May, it might've been. Which is after it was announced. And we're speaking, we're speaking in mid June now. Yeah. So about yeah. a month ago. So it was announced either at the end of April or start of May. I can't quite remember. I think end of April. And they did say it will probably be announced publicly before all the contracts are finalized and signed. This is just, it's normal because they dealing with 15, 20 companies at a time. So yeah, it was announced. We signed a contract a few weeks later and, uh, away we go. I guess from tiny seeds perspective, it's good for their PR and their um, promotion that they can announce all the companies in the batch and the cohort at once, even if some still waiting for the final paperwork. So I understand why they would have done that. Nick, this whole story sounds like, sounds like you proposed marriage to somebody without actually wanting to marry them. And then when they said yes, it's like, oh, oh, okay. I never actually thought about what I'd do if the person said yes. And then <laughs> it's kind of like, it's a, it's a really unusual way of joining the, the incubator applying without actually wanting to be in and then they accepted you there's a funny bit of this in terms of that me and sophie my partner we've been engaged for 11 years so maybe that situation is playing out in my personal life as well <laughs> and sophie <laughs> <laughs> let's let's <let's> park that <laughs> for now um i guess it was just a case of um you know i'd applied so many times to go through the exercise of applying i'd never really put too much thought into it and as you know with contracts and with things like buying houses things can fall apart you know, for yeah. no real reason and for no fault of your own, for whatever, ever reason. And so it wasn't until we had a letter of intent and, you know, that was something legal to work with and a basis to go with that I thought it was really worth putting too much time in because I didn't want to be dis distracted 
from the day-to-day work we were doing and the good growth we were getting with the tool anyway. So the day it came for you to actually sign the paperwork, you've got a pen in your hand, or maybe you've got like the, the digital equivalent of that pen in your hand. And you know that once this is done, it's done. Yes, you get this chunk of money, but a chunk of your business is no longer yours and you've made commitments. How did you feel at that very time of having to do the signing? It was nice. And so one of the questions you put down was, how did you feel about selling a chunk of your business? And when I read your question, I was like, I've never actually considered that. Like, how was I concerned about giving away a chunk or was I not concerned? And and ultimately, I think, you know, based on the numbers that TinySeed published, you can kind of work out some of the maths and so on. It was a, it's a real fair transaction. My solicitor said, business solicitor, when he went through the contract, he said, it's a really fair contract on both sides. You know, they're not, there's no red flags straight from the beginning. And based on the investment, the equity that was exchanged and the valuation that let the valuation that led to the business compared to where the monthly recurring revenue was at the time, it was a really good valuation. And it's probably about the same valuation as when we actually signed the contract and so on. So, um, it was a good deal financially. And then that's even without the extras that you get from tiny seed in terms of the mentor in the community and all the subject matter experts that you can just call upon to be able to hop onto zoom with and stuff like that. One of the reasons that I went for tiny seed ultimately was because I enjoy life and work most when I'm experiencing new things and when I'm learning new things. And so I had already bootstrapped a company and sold my shares in those. So I've gone the whole bootstrapping route before. So taking this investment is a brand new thing, new learnings, new accountability in terms of having to do a monthly report to send over to people like Einar will fire questions back to us if, uh, if the numbers indicate a certain thing and Rob will as well. It's all new stuff. And so that's what's motivating me is this, this new experience really of how to run a business. And so while we're going to stay the same in terms of being profitable and mainly bootstrapped, um, this new experience is kind of like what's interesting me as much as anything. I understand that that actually triggered off some thoughts in my head. Sometimes I feel like I'm repeating high school, repeating the year in high school, and that my current business is kind of similar to my past business. You know, if you're bootstrapped, running it remotely, tiny team, et cetera. I, I understand this need for a new challenge and to be doing new things. This is uh, that was a really good answer. So the actual mechanics of tiny seed getting the money to you and them taking a percentage. Do you just wake up one day to find a notification from your bank that says you've now got a lot more money in your bank? Is that how it works? Pretty much at a basic level, I guess. Yeah. So, um, all the contracts were done via DocuSign and so on. Um, uh, some of the, some of the, the contracts I think that tiny seed sent over were done was via Signwell, which is, uh, Ruben Gamma's is a <laughs> tiny seed business. So you can understand why they're using that. Um, so yeah, it was all done electronically. The one thing I was most nervous about probably this whole process was making sure that I had the bank account number and sort code right on the contract that was being sent over and the, the Swift code and all that kind of stuff. Cause is it the Swift code? That's quite a long one. I was like, I must have triple checked that about <laughs> 10 times, um, to make, cause you know, if that money goes missing, then who's, it's probably me that's actually accountable for that. So it was a big sigh of relief when I opened up the app on my phone and I saw the money in the account. Not just because I've got the money in the account or the business has, but mostly because I got those codes and account sort code right and everything. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was all done electronically. From a contract point of view, um, I had a solicitor, business solicitor or corporate solicitor, whichever way you look at it, that I'd used before when I sold shares in the previous business. So just relied on him really to, to sort all that out. 
the whole reassigning of new shares and generation of new shares to, to, you know, deal with the equity and the investment that was all handled by them, which is great. So yeah, it was all good. So that implies then that the money goes into the company's bank account and not to your private bank account. Instead of you just handing over some of your shares, so it's not a purchase of some of your equity, but the company actually issued new equity or new, new shares. Yeah. Yeah. It would be different for every business depending on how they're set up. Um, so with our uh -huh. particular business, um, both myself and Sophie, my partner were 50, 50 shareholders. And I think we only had one share issued each. So we had to go through the process of generating a million shares to give us more, you know, to be able to do a split. And then we generated more to dilute ourselves so that we could give equity to tiny seed. And that was how it's kind of all done. But that's where I relied on, you know, the business and corporate solicitor to understand the best way of approaching that. And that, that meant we had some meetings between their solicitor and our solicitor. And to be honest, I kind of did very little talking. It was those two just going through legal talk and saying this phrase should say this thing in a contract and that's an American term. We need to have the English term in it and things like that. That's where you really, really pays to have, um, quality assistance that you've paid for an expert in the field. So once that money appeared in your bank account or in the company's bank account, did you immediately start making plans for how you were going to spend that money? Was it just sitting there now with the, not really knowing what to do with it? It's, what big plans do you have for the money? Yeah. So it's sitting there, not with big plans at the moment. So the one thing I can tell you is that we're not going to hire and grow the team based on that money. So we'll still hire based on the monthly recurring revenue increasing and us being able to afford to bring on new people that way. The way that we're, and this can all change as well. So if we talk again in 12 months, I can probably explain how we did spend the money and we'll see whether it uh, lines up with what I've said here. So we're more looking at using the money to spend on one-off projects. So this could be, as we've done before, using a contractor to build a marketing side project as a free tool or something, or testing other marketing channels, um, or one-off projects in terms of like, we could probably do with a website redesign and the app could do with a redesign. Um, and the reason for, for kind of going this way of, of spending it on one-off bits of work is that I don't really want the stress. And again, this is why we go the bootstrap route as I think as a, as a group of people. I don't want the stress of hiring people that's being funded by this tiny seed investment that once this tiny seed investment has run out, I've got to stress about how we're going to afford to pay those salaries. Um, that's what would keep me up at night. And so we'll hire based on monthly recurring revenue growth so that I know that in 12 months time, once we've used up that tiny seed money on karaoke limos and stuff like that to, uh, to <laughs> that we've still got monthly recurring revenue coming in each month to, to pay salaries and so on. I think karaoke is cheaper than you seem to think. <laughs> I get the impression from this, that the tiny seed management don't expect to have much of a say in the day-to-day -day operations, how that money's spent. It's, it sounds like it's your decision to make and they're quite happy for you to make that decision. Yeah, I think, um, as a group, cause, uh, so how the mentoring thing kind of works, there's uh, a SAS playbook that we're, we're go kind of going through as a group in our batch right now. So we're going through the SAS playbook at the moment, which is part of the tiny seed mentoring. And so we're going through different things like the marketing channels, you can look at those kind of things. And I think there's a bit, well, for me, there's a bit of anxiety, I think about how we should spend the money in terms of making proper use of it and, you know, spending it in a way that perhaps Rob and Einar would spend it themselves because they're the, the, you know, the program uh, partners and what have you. And so I think that's probably similar to uh, the other founders within the batch as well. So. After one marketing, after one playbook call yesterday, I was like, I put a question and said, you know, is, 
experimenting with new marketing channels, a good way of spending that money, uh, spending the investment. And they were like, yep, that's fine. You can, you're, it's up to you how you spend it. You know, we're not going to hold you to account. The only, there's one caveat to that. And so we're all together in a Slack channel. Um, and so recently there was a case, I think with a VC backed company, they bought a load of cryptocurrency with the money, the investment that they had. <laughs> now we all know what's happened to crypto recently. And so I now just posted a little message, friendly joking message, very seriously. Oh, I think there's a message behind it saying, the, uh, the investment you've had from tiny C don't do what these guys did. Don't invest crypto <laughs> in crypto and so on. So if we did that, I think they'd have something to say about it. But other than that, they kind of see it as, you know, your business best and you know where to, to invest it. Oh, that's awesome. And tell me about SEO testing, your ambition for it now, like you just want to keep it growing steadily, slowly, or you, you want to one day have it be a company of 10 or 20 people take more investment. What, what do you have in the long-term plan? That is a good question. And I'll be honest, maybe I don't have a good answer for you right now. We still want to keep running it as a profitable business. So that'll be hiring at the right time when we can afford to hire people. The tiny seed investment hasn't really changed anything. We'll still treat ourselves as a bootstrap business. Um, just cause we've taken a little bit of investment, we're not swinging for the fences or we're not thinking it's IPO or bust or anything. Um, so we'll keep going along. We'll, we'll still be profitable and we'll see where that journey takes us. I guess I, it's not the, the nature of this business in terms of being an SEO tool and the market it serves and the fact that we rely on other people's data to a certain degree as well, as in Google's search console data, it's not a business like, like Basecamp that we're going to do, or we could foresee doing for the rest of our lives. So there will be some kind of point where we either sell it or something like that, I guess. Um, but there's no foreseeable plans or plans right now for that. One of your reasons for joining Tiny Seed was because of the mentoring you wanted to receive. Has something like that happened yet? That's had a good impact on, on something you do. It definitely has. So there's, there's two aspects to this that I, what I was interested in the community side of things and the mentoring. So I think I mentioned. I live out in Bude now. We moved there about six years ago. We're in a small seaside town of about 10,000 people. Um, being able to have a Slack community of other founders that I could talk to and these regular Zoom calls every fortnight, that's, that's really important to me um, and to Phil as well. Um, but then also there's subject matter experts that we can call on for any particular questions and help we might have, whether it's marketing, positioning, a particular marketing channel, so the Facebook experts, Google Ads experts, all those kind of things. Um, where I've made use of it, I've had a couple of one-to-one -one calls so far. So Rob, one was with Rob Walling himself. So we're going through the idea of perhaps having a freemium plan. So just going through the mechanics of that back and forth and kind of brainstorming with Rob as much as anything about what a freemium plan would look like, the mechanics of how it would work, um, what it would mean from a business point of view and a marketing channel. Um, and so that's been really, you know, really useful. Okay, let's wrap things up. Nick, thanks for stopping by today and so openly sharing what's happening with SEO testing and what's happening with Tiny Seed. I think there's a lot of people will be very keen to hear about what it's like to go through this process. Um, where should people go to get in touch or to learn more about SEO testing or about you? Yeah, so, well, first of all, thanks for asking me back on. It's been uh, really fun having a chat again. Um, so seotesting.com is the website to pop to if you want to take a look at the tool and uh, get any help with your SEO. And uh, just personally, if you want to get in contact, uh, I'm Nick Swan on Twitter or just nick.swan at seotesting.com for email. Nick, I'll make sure that's all in the show notes. Okay, bye Nick. Cheers, Steve. Thanks.